Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall not blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And then to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Again, follow in your Bibles. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever and forever. Father, thank you for that wonderful truth that we hear weekly. But how easy it is for us to forget that indeed your word endures. Day after day after day it's there for us. And it makes all the difference in the world because it it tells us about you. It reminds us of why we need you because we're sinners. It reminds us of all the good you've done, all the good that you're doing, and all the good that you will do for your people. We love you and thank you and ask your blessings now on this little series that we're going to do as we look forward to moving into 1 Thessalonians. But for tonight, may you... May you lay this upon our hearts with uh, a resounding impact. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you uh, who've been around for eight years uh, may remember that uh, I did a series entitled this. It was one of those little segues, little in-between series that... uh, that I was working on a new series to come, and so I, 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 I decided in the meantime, I want to I address something that was fresh on my mind, is very uh, obvious back then. Uh, this week, I was hearing a podcast, and, and uh, they, were, they were discussing uh, Jay Gresham Machen, uh, but in the course of that, they, uh, they brought up the Christianity and liberalism. A book we've mentioned, we did the series, the Wednesday series on it back in the spring. And um, in, this, in this little trio uh, on the podcast, one who's not a Presbyterian uh, and didn't grow up in Presbyterian ranks said this, you know, I had to read this in seminary as a Lutheran. 
and I now require it for one of my, my American history courses that I teach at the college. And he said, I'm convinced, having studied the context of the 1920s, that it's more relevant today than it was then. There aren't many books are more relevant a hundred years later than when they were written. But I think he's probably right. I think revisiting this topic, whatever happened to God, is more relevant today than it was eight years ago in the life of this church, in the life of church in general. I was just reading this past week a little piece that Carl Truman wrote about clowns in worship. And I, for I don't know why, you know, sometimes you just wonder why you do this. But I, I hit that little button, that little blue insert thing that he had inserted in his well-crafted article. And it was to a prominent West Coast church and a worship service where the pastors, Mr. and Mrs. Jim Bob Houdini, came out in character suits from some silly movie that they were reviewing and calling it a sermon. That's going on all over the country, folks. It's not just in California. We can sit here and say, well, that's California all day long. But it's happening closer to home than that. As I said eight years ago, we can we can look around and we can ask all the questions. You know, what's happening? Why are you doing that? Why why is this going on even among some of our people? Why do our children grow up this way? Why do we don't have to go out there? We can come inside. But the better question and the more, 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 more insightful question I concluded eight years ago, I still think is the more insightful question. That's, it, it, it's it's what hap- whatever happened to God? Now, some of you are going to say, well, biblically and theologically, nothing. That's right. Biblically and theologically, he's still sovereign over the universe, right down to the minutest, unseen part of this vast universe. He even knows if there's anything smaller than a quark. I'm not talking about the British food product. You'll look it up. If you're a scientist, you already know what a quark is. But some of you don't. I'm not going to take time to read the definition out of a science book that I looked it up in. I'll just say this. God knows if there's something smaller than it. That should tell you that to scientists today, it's the smallest known thing, which even technology can't. See, we just know it's there because it's part of a part of a part of a 
electron and proton and stuff like that. Now, for most of y'all, that's all you need to know. That's, that'll make you happy. It made me happy. <clears throat> God made it all, so he knows. But what happened to God in everyday life? And what happened to God even in the worship of alleged Bible-believing churches? That's the question we should be asking and seeking the answer to. Well, in the 19th century, Friedrich Nietzsche gave this famous statement that people have truncated, extracted three little words in the English and they made him out to be some sort of demonic force when Nietzsche, the philosopher, said God is dead. But like I like to do, let me just read you the whole statement and you're going to understand that what he said made perfect sense as he was observing life around him in the 19th century. And again, it's one of those statements that you're like, okay, if that was relevant then, how much more so now? What would he think now? God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? That's the quote. Makes sense, doesn't it? God is dead. We've killed him. And then he asked this, did you notice this this poignant question? All right, if we've put him down, if we've laid him aside, if we've covered him up, what festivals of atonement What sacred game shall we have to invent? That's what we're doing today, folks. We're inventing games to atone for our sins. We're creating what he called festivals of atonement. And we call them church. In some cases. I thought of this quote immediately when... Pastor Morris said this morning about his 16-year-old encounter and the atheist, and I thought, well, you know what? Not personal, Sean, but as I sat back there, I thought, you know what? But we, we've created his attitude. We created the setting for that person, that fool, as the Bible calls him, to say, There's no God. There's no hell like you're talking about. It's because of the way we live. 
like Amalek. Boy, that's indicting, isn't it? Isn't that stinging? What's the thing that's said about Amalek? He didn't fear God. What's the end of it all? The wise man said to fear God. Why? Because he's a consuming fire. He is not tame, as Mrs. Beaver said of Aslan. He's not tame. We respond to a shifting culture, the church that is. We often respond to a shifting culture with the shifts that parallel the cultural decline. I was asked by an English friend of mine years ago. I don't call him British because he said he's from England, so he's not British, he's English. So I'm respecting his wish He said, what is it about you Americans, particularly American churches, that you pick up all the stuff we've already abandoned 25, 30 years ago? And he went down a list of things, both in culture, and then he said, and let me show you how it it runs parallel in your churches. I mean, you know, I could have said, hey, but you're from England. We're in better shape than you are. But now, 35 years after he said that, we're not. And so, we rebrand and we recalibrate and we do it in such a way that we look so much like the world in many cases that the world doesn't see a God who is yesterday, today, and forever the same. They don't see a God who is transcendent and holy. They see a God who is shaped by culture, a God who is as pliable as Play-Doh. Children, all you little ones, if your parents have neglected you, and you don't know what Play-Doh is, just come see Pastor Wilborn after worship service and the elders will have a talk with him. Okay? A God whose message is as meaningless as the perceived God that the world has picked up. And so, for all practical matters, God is dead. Whatever happened to God? Well, for one thing, we stopped reading our Bibles and we stopped believing it. I want to ask you when the last time you read a Bible prior to today. I want to ask how many of you had trouble finding your Bibles this morning to bring them to church? I want to ask you. But God will. Hopefully tonight we will start over. At least here. That's where we begin. Where does judgment begin? Where does the Bible say judgment begins? In the house of the Lord. 
that tells me that more often than not, we're the problem. People don't see the real God because we don't live like there's a real God. We live like Nietzsche's uh, God that he described. We've, we've, we've crucified him. We have blood all over our hands. We can't even say like Pilate, I wash my hands because they're too bloody. He's to be feared and we have to regain that. As I said, we, we, have, to, we have to get back to this imagery of, of God being I know this sounds strange, but if Aslan created just the thought of Aslan, the mention of Aslan's name brought fear and trembling through the whole forest. He was no tame lion. Now there's the other side of that. And that's part of the problem today. We have in the church, all right? Oh, we shouldn't preach this fear God. That's not the way to go about this. Tell them that he loves them. And we turn love into something. Loving God, God loves you, is something akin to I love D&B hot dogs. I love Dean's grilled salmon. I love, and the doctor said, don't eat it. It's killing you right now. Chick-fil-A, not the grilled stuff that tastes awful, the greasy fried stuff. That's what we turned love into. But we don't fear well, I, I fear the Chick-fil-A, but we don't fear Dean's salmon. That's good for you. We don't even fear the occasional D&B hot dog. But we're supposed to fear God. Let me give you a few examples. If what I've done in Deuteronomy and Ecclesiastes is not enough, and this I, I have three pages. I'm not going to read them all. And I stopped. Go to your concordance. Look up fear of the Lord or fear God or fear and just go to the context and see how often this fear God. And it goes on and on and on. Listen, you know, you can go to Proverbs and Psalms and find this fear of the Lord over and over again. Let me give you a few examples. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools. Now the contrast here is if you if you fear the Lord, you're wise. But if you if you don't fear the Lord, you're a fool. Amalek was a fool, and God dealt with him. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, God says. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Psalm 38, 8. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. I thought it was bad to fear the Lord. That's what you hear in some theological circles. 
Oh, no, we don't preach the law. We don't preach fear. We preach grace and love. I'm sorry, but the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The friendship of the Lord, Psalm 25, 14, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. You want Jesus as your friend? Then you better be afraid. We go on. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said that. Jesus said that just like he said all those that I read to you in Proverbs and Psalms. Paul. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Wow. You want to be holy? Fear of of God's right there. It's part of the equation. And one more. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Rather, fear the one who can kill both body and soul. The reference there the Lord's using is obviously to to the great triune God, God the judge. That's the introduction. So what does it mean to fear God? Because when we think of fear, we just think of running and hiding. But obviously it doesn't, doesn't mean that. Necessarily. And by the way, it wouldn't work. Amalek couldn't get away. You and I won't get away. We don't have armies at our disposal. But did you notice? Fear of the Lord involves friendship. I don't know about it, y'all, but. I don't make friends with people I'm afraid of. I wouldn't want to. So what does it mean? It means first respect for God. It means to show him the deference due to him which is due to no one else. We don't fear God the way we should. I want to illustrate this to you. Several years ago, General Assembly was in Mobile, Alabama. It was one of the few occasions Carol went with me. She's not a GA girl. I don't blame her. But we were going to Mobile, and, uh, and so she had never been down. I wanted her to go with me, and I was going to show her down to Theodore and go to Bellingrath Home and Gardens and all those lovely parts of the coast. and We had a lovely time. Dear friends of ours, we were going to go to supper with them one night, and he said, I've invited a friend. He's here by himself, first time in a general assembly. Is that, I hope it's okay. I said, sure, it's okay. So we go out to this nice restaurant where I got food poisoning, and... It was nice. The food was good, but I did get food poisoning. 
and uh, it was a great way to start a General Assembly week. Um, in the course of that conversation, this gentleman, whom I did not know, said this. They began talking, my friend and his friend, talking about the death of a mutual friend. And he said to my friend, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I wore a suit to John's funeral. I don't even wear a suit to church. You know why I wore a suit? Because I respect John. I want to tell you, I hope right now chill bumps just ran over. Maybe the hair on the back of your neck, the women's hair on the back of their neck, I don't know. But I hope you had some sort of internal convulsion over that. You see what he just said? I respect John, but I don't respect God. You say, no, dress, getting dressed up in a suit doesn't have, well, it did in his case, didn't it? I dressed up, I put on a suit to go to his funeral. I don't even dress up to go to church. Because then he added, I respect John. The only way you can read that was he didn't respect God. We've lost it. In this casual culture of ours, we've lost a good degree of respect for anything and everyone. Second, reverence toward God. Our Lord Jesus expressed reverence toward the Father. If he did, we should. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus showed reverence for the Father. And how did he do it? Well, when he prayed, he did it with cries and tears. But he also prayed. That's the beginning, isn't it? With prayers and supplications, with loud cries and tears, he offered these prayers because of his reverence. We can just so flippantly, so glibly, hey, Lord, how you doing? Got a laundry list here. I know you know them, but I'm going to go down it anyway. I got to get to work. Uh, everyone's here saying, I've never prayed like that. Well, maybe we have. How about reading your Bible in the morning? That can become... A, a, a good exercise in speed reading, can it? Oh man, I've got to go, but I want to. I've got to read this. All right, good deal. You move the marker. There's no reverence. I mean, parents wouldn't accept that kind of treatment from children. You'd say, that's being disrespectful. Don't talk to me like that. No respect, no reverence. 
There's a note of caution in this word reverence. We're creatures and we're to be careful when we enter into the presence of the consuming fire. If Nadab and Abihu teach us anything, it's caution, isn't it? Reverence. Respect. And that all comes from obeying God's word. Third, third, awe of God. We are called upon to come into his presence with awe and reverence. We read that earlier. Therefore, since we have a since we receive a kingdom, notice it doesn't say since we shall receive, since we receive a kingdom, Jesus preached the kingdom of God. The disciples in the book of Acts preached the kingdom of God. It's already, it's not yet. Since we receive, present tense, a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Why? Well, you know why already, because I read the rest of it to you. Because he is a consuming fire. It doesn't say because he isn't a loving God. Because he's a consuming fire. That's to to prompt reverence and awe in us. And that, by the way, is not just in worship, corporate worship. That's all the time. And then finally, silence before God. We won't take time to go to Job chapter 40. Some of you will instantly remember Job 40. Job has been talking and God comes and we're told that Job shut his mouth in the presence of God. What's the point? The point is, in that context, that genuine fear shuts down our pride. Job had been making some excuses. God comes on the scene. And Job says, I'll I'll just zip it up right now. His pride was shot. When pride abates, our tongue is silenced. Fear promotes a learning heart before God, not a debating tongue, not an instructive tongue, but a learning heart. And Job just sat there and took it. We don't like to sit and take it, not even from God. And that shows disrespect. It shows a lack of awe. It shows a lack of reverence. It's like when you're having a conversation and every time you start to say something or you say something, the other person has something to say back. And it's usually a bigger story or a better story or they're playing the contrarian and you're like, oh, wow, okay. Maybe I'll just pat you on the back and let's go do something different. Because it's pride. Silence is golden.
Good old-fashioned fright before God. Love and fear are not exclusives. We love him for he first loved us. We fear him because he is perfect. He's thrice holy. He's righteous. He's the judge of all deeds. We're to fear the Lord. Aslan is, as one author described him, a being both intolerably severe and irresistibly tender. Isn't that a great description of Aslan? If you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, if you've read particularly the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, that's a perfect description. Intolerably severe and irresistibly tender. That's a good description of our God. The Jesus we trust and love, like Aslan, is not a tame God. He turns over tables. He castigates the Pharisees for their hypocrisy and unbelief. He's severe. He inspires terror. He does not bend to our whims or erase the consequences of our actions. And yet, he is good. And he is loving. And he is saving. He's patient. He's compassionate. He's forgiving. That's our Lord Jesus. And that's one of the reasons we fear him. So, why fear God? Because through a proper, reverential, holy disposition toward God, we can then properly embrace the one who is both terrifying and transformingly loving. As C.S. Lewis once said of Jesus, the great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, remember how we started this? We live in a whimsical, arbitrary, we change, we rebrand, we recalibrate. The great thing to remember is that though our feelings come and go, his love for us does not. It's not wearied by our sins or our indifference, and therefore it's quite relentless in its determination that we shall be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us, at whatever cost to him. That's a good reason to fear God. Because he's the only one that can help you. And he's the only one that loves us like we need to be loved. So, this is the beginning. I think the last time I did this topic was six weeks. I, this won't go six weeks because I want to get on to First Thessalonians. But I hope you can see tonight why I thought this was important to stop and, and why I also I hope you, many of you in this room weren't here eight years ago. Many of you in this room weren't even born eight years ago. But for those who do remember, we're here and do remember, I think you'd agree this is more relevant now than it was then. Think of the things that have gone on in our own denomination, the PCA, that tell us that people don't fear God. Oh, I live with a man. I'm a Christian. I go to church every week. 
When you say you live with that man, does that mean you're married? Oh, no, no. Well, you don't fear God. Oh, I'm into this alternative lifestyle, but I'm a Christian. You don't fear God. God said that's an abomination. We can go on down the list, can't we? And we hear that more and more and more, certainly more today than we did eight years ago. We've lost the fear of the Lord. And that's the reason so many people out there don't have any fear of God and don't have any respect for what we say. They don't have any need for our Jesus. Even though they do have a genuine need for our Jesus, but because they can't see him. Because of the way we portrayed him. Let's repent of that and go and live for Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this evening. We ask your blessings now. In Jesus' name, amen.